choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? In that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode number 340 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 15, Climb to Orbit. 15, 12, 11, 10, 9, 8, ignition sequence start, engines on, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, all engines running, launch commit, liftoff, we have liftoff at 934. Liftoff, right on schedule, Apollo 15 started to lift away from the pad. The sunlight pouring directly through the hatch window meant that at one point, Scott had to put his hand up to shield his eyes so that he could read the instrument panels. To Scott, the launch didn't seem as noisy on Apollo 15 as it had been on Apollo 9. Scott could hear communication with mission control pretty well throughout. But in the first second or so, there was a little more lateral shaking and vibration than he had expected. Okay, liftoff. Worden confirmed to launch control. The Saturn V could be heard a hundred miles away, shaking the onlookers with a popping and crackling vibration. But inside, there was only a muffled roar as the engine thrust far beneath them vibrated up through the rocket structure. They began a smooth, slow rise from the launch pad in an eerie kind of silence. Although the rocket pounded the pad with a punishing amount of thrust, the crew moved upward very slowly. The rocket was so heavy that it took about 12 seconds to clear the tower. Worden could feel the engines swivel as they leaned the Saturn V away from the tower. The rocket was so delicately balanced in those first seconds that a strong gust of wind could have blown it into the tower if it had not tilted away. As they cleared the tower, flight control passed from the Cape to Mission Control in Houston. And the clock is running, Scott informed Houston, confirming that the mission event timer on the main display console in front of them had begun counting. For Scott, all feelings were forgotten. All senses except sight were subordinated. All Scott's concentration was focused on hearing information from Irwin and Worden and Mission Control about the status of the spacecraft and the Saturn V. Almost as soon as Apollo 15 cleared the tower, the rocket picked up speed and rolled automatically to place the crew on the right path for orbit. Worden stayed busy watching the trajectory on the instruments, checking his cue card, which told him that they had to be at certain altitudes at precise times, moving at specific speeds. Everything was going according to plan. Worden also kept an eye on Scott, who had a grip on the abort handle. If anything went wrong, 
a firm twist of his glove would activate the escape tower and shoot them clear of the Saturn V. The mission would be over. During their training, Irwin and Warden had jokingly pleaded with Scott to let them hold hands during liftoff, not because they were scared, but because they could prevent Scott from turning the abort handle and thus ending the mission. In fact, just before liftoff, Jim and Al had each placed one of their gloved hands on Dave's glove. To an outsider, it would have looked like a three musketeers all for one moment. In truth, it was actually Jim and Al reminding Dave, don't you dare twist that handle. Worden was glad that they had an escape option, but he would rather have died than see Scott abort the mission unnecessarily. We have liftoff at 9.34 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time. The tower is clear. And we have a roll program. Roger. You have good thrust on all five engines. Thanks, Gordo. Roll's complete. Roger. And we have a pitch program. Roger, pitch. Stand by for mode one Bravo. Mark, one Bravo. Roger, one Bravo. Booster systems engineer reports to flight director that S1C stage looking good. As Scott concentrated on the instrument panel, he focused on the eight ball, which indicated the attitude or orientation of the spacecraft, a small panel of eight orange lights and one red light indicating the status of the Saturn V engines, a Q meter showing the aerodynamic pressure on the spacecraft, another meter showing engine pressure in the launch vehicle, and the big red abort light. Throughout these critical moments of their powered ascent, there were various modes of aborting the launch in the event of a major failure of any aspect of either the Apollo spacecraft or the Saturn V, which was now gulping down 15 tons of fuel per second beneath them. This was one of the riskiest times of the entire mission, and one for which it had been particularly difficult to train. It was a matter of split-second decision-making, and very precise reflexes under conditions which were often extremely difficult to replicate in a simulator. It was not common knowledge, but if the Saturn V launch vehicle's guidance system were to malfunction, the Saturn V could be flown using the spacecraft's guidance system. This could be affected by computer or Scott could use the joystick in his right hand to steer the Saturn V with its three separate stages. In the latter case, manual control was activated by turning the T handle in Scott's left hand in a clockwise direction 45 degrees. The Saturn would immediately respond to signals from the command module. Scott could then fly the vehicle using information from the instrument panel, especially the 8-ball. According to a specific flight profile based on pre-flight information as well as computer data, this technique was practiced many times during simulations, but never used on any Apollo mission. If, however, a situation were considered serious enough, Scott could abort the mission. For this, there had to be two independent cues of a problem. But the mechanics of initiating an abort took only a 45-degree counterclockwise twist of the T-handle. Scott could not afford to make a mistake because any error in moving this device could have catastrophic consequences for the mission. Yet the time frame within which an abort could be activated measured only fractions of a second. 
the first phase in which abort was possible occurred as the Saturn V climbed to a height of 10,000 feet in just 42 seconds. During this phase, an abort would separate the spacecraft from the launch vehicle and ignite the launch escape system rocket on top of the spacecraft. The escape rocket would be jettisoned soon after the initial separation, and the spacecraft would then descend on parachutes to a normal splashdown. The second abort phase extended until just over a minute into the flight as the crew reached an altitude of just under 16 miles. Throughout these vital seconds, Worden, Irwin, and Mission Control gave Scott constant status reports. As they climbed to the 16-mile mark, there were no signs of any malfunctions. Apollo 15 quickly went supersonic. The engine noise could no longer reach the astronauts. The crew passed through the period of maximum dynamic pressure on the rocket at T plus 1 minute 22 seconds, and Warden felt them shake and roll a little, but they held steady. Stay cool, Al told himself. I'm not nervous. I can do this. Even if the ground finds out I am nervous, it will be too late. We will be in space, thought Al. Going through maximum dynamic pressure at this time. Apollo 15's trajectory was now arcing, but it still felt as though they were heading straight up because the acceleration pressed the astronauts back into the couch. As the propellant burned, the rocket grew lighter and faster, and the G-forces built up until they felt four times heavier than normal. Apollo 15 was now high above the thickest part of the atmosphere, and the rocket pushed forward faster and faster. Then, a lateral oscillation gave them the sensation of taking a curve on a high-speed express train. It was a combination of up and continually pitching over before they finally got horizontal. The crew now felt plastered against the couch, and it was difficult to raise their arms to touch a switch or move a lever. But that would only be necessary in an abort situation. Less than three minutes into the flight, they were already 50 miles from the launch pad. The first stage had done its job. It was time for separation. The crew had discussed this moment a little during training. The first stage would shut down, they would separate, the second stage would light, and away they would go. It sounded simple enough, but Jim and Al were in for a surprise. As they were pressed down in their couches, feeling heavy, when the first stage engine shut down, it felt like they had slammed on the brakes of a speeding sports car. Jim and Al instinctively threw up their arms, fighting the feeling that they would break through the restraining harnesses and smash right through the instrument panel. Dave, on the other hand, hardly moved. After Jim and Al finished flailing around, they looked over at Dave, took a deep breath, and asked, Dave, what is happening? Dave gave them the confident smile of someone who had flown a Saturn V before. Oh, that's normal. No big deal. I just forgot to tell you about it. But back on the ground, things were not going as planned. Flight controllers had just lost the instrumentation from the first stage. The thrust from the first stage engines had decayed more slowly than expected. The stage had small retro rockets to pull it away before the second stage lit. But the retro rockets on Apollo 15 had been reduced by half to save weight. Unfortunately, that was a cut too far. The stages stayed dangerously close to each other, and when the second stage engines fired, the exhaust burnt the electronics on the first stage. The astronauts were lucky that the second stage did not collide with the first stage. 
9 miles downrange, 13, 14.5 miles height. Charlie, Mark, one Charlie now. Roger, one Charlie. Each of the S1 seized. Roger. Each of the five S1C engines gulping three tons of fuel per second. Inboard. That's your inboard. Flight Dynamics reports go for staging. Good stage. Roger. Fifteen Houston, you have good thrust on the S2. All five are good. Okay. At an altitude of 38 miles, the second stage engines lit, and the astronauts were once again pushed into their couches. Now, Apollo 15 was shorter, leaner, and lighter. The launch escape tower was jettisoned as the spacecraft was too high for it to do any good now. The crew could see out the windows as the sky grew even blacker. The second stage was a comfortable, soft ride, but not powerful enough to kick the crew into orbit. Having done its job, the second stage also dropped away, a smooth, easy transition. Apollo 15 hurled up at more than 15,000 miles per hour, while the second stage began a long, tumbling fall to the ocean. Coming up on 10,000 feet per second, Mark, downrange 131, altitude 66. 15 Houston at 4, the guidance uh, has converged. The CMC is go, everything looks good. Okay, go, let's get up here. Now at 35% of the velocity needed to orbit. Downrange 190 miles, altitude 79. The crew reported their status each minute of the ascent, as called for in the Command and Service Module Launch Checklist Manual. 15 Houston, five minutes. Everything looks nominal. Your go. Okay, good. Thank you. Looks good up here. 40% of velocity needed. Roger. Downrange 271, altitude 88. Predicting nominal shutdown on the S2 stage. Times are nominal. A level sense arm will be 8 plus 3, 4, and S2 cutoff at 9er plus 0, 9er. Over. Uh, Roger, 8 plus 3, 4, and 9 plus 0, 9. And stand by for S4B to COI. Mark, you have S4B to COI now. Altitude 94.5, velocity 15,000 feet per second. Stand by for S4B to orbit capability. Mark, you have it now. Mark, S4B to orbit. Downrange 479, altitude 96, now approaching 65% of velocity needed for orbit. Velocity now 16,700 feet per second. Official time of liftoff, 34 minutes, 00, zero seconds, point seven nine. Inboard? Roger, inboard. Right. Downrange, 660 miles, altitude 95 miles. 78% velocity required for orbit. 15, you can look at that. 15, you can look at Go ahead. I'll say again, sir. Houston 15, we didn't call. You got something? Uh, you've had PO shift, and the uh, thrust looks good. Okay.
that level sense arm now. Roger. About six seconds to staging. Stand by for mode four capability. Mark, you have mode four now. Roger, in a good stage. Roger. Apollo 15 was now nearing the correct height for its Earth parking orbit. This orbit was very low and would not be sustainable over the long term, but it was sufficient for the two hours and 50 minutes that the crew and mission control would require to check all the vehicle's systems before they left for the moon. The stack was now traveling almost horizontally, skimming through the upper atmosphere and accelerating. Then the big engine on the third stage lit. It would raise Apollo 15 speed by only a few thousand miles per hour, just enough to reach orbit. Stand by for mode 4 capability. Mark, you have mode 4 now. Roger, in a good stage. Roger. Booster reports thrust okay on the S-4B stage. You've had, uh, you have good thrust on the S-4B. Roger. 960 miles downrange, 94.7 altitude, velocity 23,230. Worden watched the instruments as the third stage gradually arced the stack into a path to circle the Earth. During the last part of the burn, the stack even angled down toward Earth a small amount so they could lock into orbit. The crew fell around the planet in a beautifully precise curve, not falling back to Earth nor leaving it. Not yet. 15 Houston, everything's looking uh, perfect. Uh, predicted cutoff time 11 plus 37. Over. Uh, Roger, 11 plus 37. 1281 miles downrange, 93.4 altitude, 97% of velocity, 98% of velocity required, 25,143 feet per second. Okay, cut off, 11 one plus 34. Roger. Booster confirms the S4B has shut down. Okay, Houston, uh, gimbal motors are off, and the uh, S4B oxidizer is 4-0, and the fuel is about 3-1. I just 4-0 and 3-1. Okay, Houston, we got ourselves in a 93.7 by 88.9, shut down on a VI of plus 25595, H dot plus 0008, altitude plus 00932. Roger, out, copy. Eleven and one-half minutes into the flight, the third stage engine finally shut down. Less than 12 minutes had passed since it had sat on the launch pad. Now Apollo 15 was traveling more than 17,000 miles per hour, and Jim and Al were in space for the first time. After all the years of training, they had finally arrived. That was a detailed description of the climb to orbit. Now, here is a taste of how it sounded on July 26th on NBC TV. 10, 9, 8, ignition sequence start, engines on, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, all engines running, launch commit, liftoff, we have liftoff at 9.34 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time.
Sounds of fuel per second. Airport. Roger, airport. That was the center engine cutting off. Four still burning.
Here's the uh, second stage engines cutting off. The in ender engine, center engine, I should say, is cut off. The outboard engines uh, remain ignited for another couple of minutes. Downrange 660 miles, altitude 95 miles. 78% velocity required for orbit. Once in orbit, in the heads-down position, the astronauts had a chance to catch their first sight of Earth. Jim tried to dig out the TV camera right away to capture the view. Of course, Dave had seen it before, but Jim and Al had never witnessed such a sight. The beautiful planet Earth stretched below with a thin horizon that knifed between sky and black space. To them, it was stunning and strikingly delicate. And because they were in such a low orbit, they zipped across oceans and continents in minutes. Each Earth orbit took an hour and a half. Their days were 45 minutes long, and their speed was 17,500 miles per hour. They could have spent the next hour just staring out the window. But all too soon, Mission Control in Houston radioed and reminded the crew to get to work. They busied themselves with checklists. They had to check out all the systems in the command module to ensure it had reached space in good shape and to be sure everything was in working order for the translunar injection burn over the Pacific, which would put them on a trajectory to the moon. If there was a problem, they might have to return to Earth immediately. But one thing was for sure. There wasn't much time until Apollo 15 had to leave Earth orbit. Al tore his gaze from the window and got busy. Al had spent years training inside command modules, but it had always been in Earth's gravity. Now, he was weightless, and the command module felt very different. There seemed to be no walls or floors anymore, no up and down, just surfaces and space to float around in. On the launch pad, the spacecraft had seemed cramped. Now it felt roomier. As the crew checked out the spacecraft, Al floated under the seats and up into the docking tunnel. Endeavor still wasn't big but it felt different when all the interior space could be used. To Al, weightlessness felt odd, like swimming underwater, but without the heavy feel of water pressure on him. Al was concerned that he might feel space sick, an affliction similar to motion sickness that affects some astronauts when they float around, so he used a trick to keep it at bay. On Earth, he had found that if he focused on a task, he didn't have to worry about motion sickness. So, he floated around as much as he could, figuring this was the quickest way to get over any nausea. Dave warned him to slow down a little, concerned he might grow ill. But, Al figured he would be weightless for two weeks, and he didn't want to just sit back and feel bad. On the other hand, Jim had to accept the fact that he didn't feel completely comfortable. Jim was amazed how Al was scooting around the spacecraft. But thankfully, 
He and Dave had no need to move because they could do all their tasks from their couches. When Jim went weightless, he loosened his seat straps and used them just to maintain the right position. He did not want to do any somersaults or even try to move his head fast. He was very concerned about becoming space sick. At least by this time, Jim had taken his helmet off, so if he became nauseated, it wouldn't have been life-threatening. But if he had vomited, they would have had a problem containing the stuff, not to mention the smell. So Jim was cautious. When Jim finally unstrapped, he noticed that he tended to float to the top of the spacecraft, like a swimmer in a pool. The more experienced Dave generally kept himself strapped in his couch, saying that otherwise he would be fighting the panel all the time. Al discovered Dave was right. The slightest movement in the couch floated him into the instrument panel. Like many astronauts and cosmonauts before them, the crew suffered from stuffy head, along with flushed and puffy faces and bulging eyes. But there was no time to let this discomfort affect them. They were all very busy. They were in a low Earth orbit, too low to linger long, and could only go around the Earth for a couple of hours before they had to head to the moon. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 340 of the Space Rocket History Podcast, entitled Apollo 15, The Climb to Orbit. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure bringing it to you. Our next episode is scheduled to be released in two weeks on June 18th. If you are new to the podcast, what we are trying to accomplish here is a timeline approach to the exploration of space. I began in ancient times, and now I have reached the year 1971. I try to cover the most significant space missions of each year, which includes manned and unmanned missions from all the countries in the world. Up to this point, that has mostly been the United States and the Soviet Union, but we have covered other countries as well. Something else I want you to be aware of is if you're listening on the main feed of the podcast, you will not see all of the episodes. I have the first 168 episodes available on the Archive podcast. To find them, search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on most podcatchers. And if you'd like a better copy of those archive episodes as they were originally released with all the afterthoughts, they are available for download on the homepage at spacerockethistory.com. As usual, I had some afterthoughts on this episode. Well, you really have to be careful with that abort handle. If I understood it correctly, you twist it one way, to take manual control of the rocket, and the opposite way to abort the flight. Now, I could see that being mixed up pretty easily. I don't want to question their design because I'm sure they had a good reason for what they did, but wow, that that seems like such a potential for a problem. You twist it the incorrect way, and you may abort the flight instead of taking manual control. To me, that seems a little risky. Now, how about that staging bump? I believe this is shown very well on the movie Apollo 13, when the you'll see the astronauts plastered back in their seats and then suddenly thrown forward when the first stage cuts off then plastered back for stage two. 
Do you think Dave Scott didn't tell Jim and Al about that on purpose? Was it kind of like a rookie ritual you had to go through on your first flight? I kind of think Dave didn't tell him on purpose. When they did stage, there was something interesting that happened. I hope you caught, because I did not remember this. They reduced the amount of retros on the uh, first stage. So it did not push the stage far enough away from the second stage. And when the second stage ignited, it burned the electronics on the first stage. Now, I suppose that was a potential for collision. So it was a pretty close call. And I had not really heard that story before. Or at least I don't remember hearing it before. I forget a lot of what I've heard in the past. Anyway, let's continue on. Last week, I mentioned how much I love the Saturn V launch episodes. And I get pretty nostalgic and a little emotional when I do one of these things. And I got an email from uh, Mr. Mark Wittick, whose father worked at NASA during this uh, time period, the Apollo launches. And he described his experience, this is Mark's experience, during the moon launches when he would go with his family there to see a launch. I would like to read an excerpt from that email right now. On launch day, we would have a car pass to park on the center causeway. And what a fun party. Everyone excited and the NASA PA system kept Jack King's voice broadcasting on the large speakers wired along the road. It was mostly very hot and muggy. Looking across the usually mirror steel lagoon, and you could just see the pad in the still hot morning air. Pelicans, mosquitoes, alligators, and porpoises kept us busy during the many hours before and after liftoff. Traffic was unreal. My heart would race every time Saturn launch control updates were broadcast either over WRKT, a local AM radio station that always carried a liftoff, or over the NASA PA speakers. Jack King's voice felt like family. I never knowingly met him. Dad would have, of course, left many hours before we did. What a fantastic place and time. Thanks for bringing it back so beautifully. When I listen to your countdowns, I also get that same emotional response you mentioned, plus a flood of fond memories like I just shared. Thank you, Mark, so much for sharing those experiences. I really appreciate it. And finally... I would like to give a big, and I'm talking big, congratulations to NASA and SpaceX for the successful launch and docking of the commercial crew demo flight. I think I watched as much of the launch coverage as I could. I watched a lot of it. And then around launch time, I had the grandsons come over and we watched both the scrub and the launch. I think they really enjoyed the launch. What a relief it is to finally be able to launch astronauts from U.S. soil after nine long years. The end of the dark times that I hope will never come again. How about that crew dragon? That thing is nice. I love how clean and simplified the inside looks. And it seems roomy somehow. I love the electronic displays. And wasn't it nice to have cameras to watch the launch from inside the capsule? That was really fun. It is just fantastic. I love those flight suits too. They are sharp and functional and pretty easy to get on and off. That's what I understand. It really looks like a 21st century operation. 
So, I guess we are about at the level of launching people into space as we were with uh, Apollo 7 in 1967. Now, that's a loose comparison. It's not exactly apples to apples. It's a little more like apples to pears or something comparison. But it's about that area, that level. Hopefully, Sometime in the 2020s, we will exceed the capability we had from 1969 to 1972 with the moon missions. But it is a relief to at least be up to 1967 again. Did anyone catch that Bob and Doug, the SpaceX astronauts, named their spacecraft the Endeavor? Hey, did you know that's the name of the command module for Apollo 15? And, of course, there was the shuttle endeavor. I enjoyed listening to some of the press conferences after the launch. I heard someone ask Elon Musk if there was anything he wanted to say to the doubters of SpaceX. Those who doubted this day would never come. And I really liked Elon's response. He said, well, I kind of agreed with them. (laughs) Many times he doubted it would come as well. He spent all his money that he made from PayPal on SpaceX and Tesla, is what he said. And then back in, I think it was 2008, SpaceX nearly went under trying to get a satellite launched. So there was no in-your-face arrogance from Elon at all. And I found that very refreshing. I heard someone ask the NASA administrator, of course, why it took so long to get here. And he mentioned the cancellation of the shuttle and the cancellation of the George Bush moon program by President Obama. But what really struck me was when he, what he said after that. He said NASA is subject to the whimsical budgets of politicians. Now that may be the most accurate statement I have heard from this administrator. And it was eloquently put, very descriptive of the situation. NASA is subject to the whimsical budgets of politicians. It is well to always remember that. If you are enjoying the podcast without commercial interruption and you are financially able, and I want to stress that you are financially able because I don't want any money from someone who cannot afford it. For the past seven years, we have been entirely listener-supported. So, if you would like to contribute, go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and click on the orange Donate button or the Patreon link. Over the past fortnight, we had several new contributions and increases, and I would like to thank Andrew S. from Melbourne, Australia, who donated at the Apollo level and earned a rocket emoji. James M. donated at the Apollo level and earned a shooting star emoji. Steve C. from Georgia donated at the Gemini level and earned a satellite emoji. Andrej S. from the Czech Republic sent in another donation and moved to the Soyuz level. Todd M. from Florida donated at the Mercury level and earned a rocket emoji. David G. from the U.K. donated at the Vostok level. Jason P. pledged on Patreon at the Orion level. Liam O. pledged on Patreon at the Apollo level. And Kevin O. pledged on Patreon at the Vostok level. Our total Patreon donors have reached 247. That is a loss of two from last time. Our goal is to reach 300 by the end of the year. 
And our total number of donors for 2020 have reached 344 with a goal of reaching 500 by the end of the year. Now, here's Mrs. SRH with this episode's Donor Giveaway. Thanks, Mike. And hello, friends. Congratulations, SpaceX and NASA. Oh, how exciting to watch astronauts launch into space once again from U.S. soil. You know, I remember watching the last space shuttle launch and hoping, hoping something new was on the horizon. I was teaching middle school, middle school science at the time, and the students were all excited about trying to figure out what was coming up next. You know, I did not think it would take this long, but I am glad we are back. Of course, we wanted to share this historic event with our grandchildren, and it was great. I'm sure you can guess what we had is our ceremonial treat. Yep, tang. (laughs) They love that stuff. Afterwards, the grands were trying their hand at building the Falcon 9 and Crew Dragon out of Legos. Yeah, we had a blast. And now you know what time it is. It is time for our drawing. This episode's winner will get the choice of a Space Rocket History Magnet or two coasters, two stickers or two static clings or two of the new holographic stickers. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Matt Milkowski. Matt Milkowski, if you would email us, Mike, at spacerockethistory.com, tell us your address and your SRH prize preference, we will mail this out to you. Sincere thanks to all 344 of you who contributed thus far in 2020. My sources for this episode were NASA, Two Sides of the Moon by David Scott, To Rule the Night by Jim Irwin, Falling to Earth, an an Apollo 15 astronaut's journey to the moon by Al Warden, Apollo 15 Flight Journal, Internet Archive, NBC News, and Wikipedia. That is all we have for episode number 340. I'll try to have episode 341 posted by Thursday, June 18th. Stay healthy, everyone, and so long for now.